I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico, and I'm ready to save the princess from Ganondorf all over again <laughs> this week. Uh, and I'm your other co-host, Dean Detloff, and I'm ready to watch my wife do that all week. Um, she is going <laughs> to lose her mind over that video game. Man, that's right, folks. It's it's time for Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom. <laughs> This is the only podcast where you're going to hear about that particular video game and liberation theology all <laughs> in the same episode. And I think that you should be happy about that. Yeah, I think so, too. You know what? Um, I will brag about my my wife, Emily, and her extreme devotion to this game or a very intense commitment. She did 100% that game. She got every Korok seed. She did every shrine. Uh, Breath of the Wild, that is. She did all that you could possibly do. And man, um, it is like a, a really impressive commitment to a thing that I have never really like applied myself in such great detail to anything else in my life. Yeah, you have a PhD and I feel like, I, I mean, even as a fellow PhD holder, I don't feel like it's that big of a commitment as getting all the Clorox seeds. No, I agree. I did not 100% philosophy, that's for sure. <laughs> man, I I speed run, I speed ran, I speed run it. Man, <laughs> I did that for sure. I got through it quick. That's what I, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I do want a big progress fire in my life. Maybe that's what you get after you die. You do get to heaven and St. Peter says, great job. You managed to fill up all these different meters and that decides kind of where you get to go. OK, but you only have like these, these are the only trophies that you got. And they're like, you know, <laughs> uh, longest, longest <laughs> TikTok scroll, <laughs> the biggest, biggest fart on your block. And it's just like the worst. These are all meters for hell. I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> well yeah okay no good point <laughs> um yeah i think uh you know the saints they well not all of them maybe but a handful of them they've really 100 percented it or did a good complete run and so on but the rest of us i don't know i'll be content to just sort of say i got maybe like a 40 percent or so there was a lot of life i didn't get to a lot of um you know a lot of sins i did commit but uh i explored enough of it to not have like an embarrassing score that's what i'm looking for at the end Good. I was about to ask a follow-up question to <laughs> to the uh, the sin achievement bar, but I realized that we're getting extremely close to to the goofy territory <laughs> that is only for the uh, the behind the paywall podcast. So I'm going to stop myself there. Yep. And uh, let's make a hard pivot. Let's make a hard left turn on this podcast. I'm holding on. Um, I'm holding on to that weird little <laughs> handle that you see in the front of a car. 
Jesus, take the wheel. Um, <laughs> folks, you've heard about Leonardo Boff, and you love him, right? This guy, he wrote a great book about ecology and liberation theology. He, We talk about him in almost every episode, I think. <laughs> uh, he's <laughs> Leonardo Boff is everyone's favorite Brazilian former priest turned liberation theologian. I interviewed him for, for G's once. He's a genuinely nice person. There you go. He is uh, a genuinely nice person. Dean has talked to him via email, and that's something that's kind of incredible. <laughs> but you probably haven't heard of his his brother, the other boff, the dark boff. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> He's just regular, I think. Anyways, Leonardo Boff has a brother named Clodovis Boff, uh, who remained a Catholic priest, unlike Leonardo Boff, in the Servite Order. And he was also a socialist and uh, interested in liberation the- theology, but uh, had some critiques of it. On May 1st, 1989, on the dual celebration of International Workers' Day and the feast day of St. Joseph the Worker, Clodovis Boff wrote a letter about a recent trip he took to Cuba, the Soviet Union, and China, uh, reflecting on socialism in those countries. In the letter, he lays out his thoughts on the relationship between socialism, democracy, and Christianity. Boff's letter is cool. Um, I like it. I like Anything that's like an artifact of someone kind of parsing out socialism at a particular time is, for some mm-hmm. reason, extremely interesting to me. Um, same. They can say the same things as everybody else, and I do just want to hear them say it in a different context. Oh, totally. And he does just that, and I love it. So <laughs> it's interesting because it's uh, it's interesting for that particular reason, right? Because it's somebody kind of figuring out socialism in, in a letter. Love that. Love the whole vibe. But also, I think that there's a kind of a trend of liberation theologians who will, you know, they'll often talk about socialism and they'll talk about politics, but they'll kind of like hedge their bets a little bit about socialism. And I think that this particular letter from Clodovis Boff is interesting because he confesses like that he is actually a socialist, right? He's not like a liberation theologian kind of like skirting the question of socialism. He's like, he's in it. He's he sold on the whole idea. I think that's cool. And this and this uh, letter is kind of him parsing out some of that, uh, you know, what that looks like. What does it mean to be um, a Catholic priest uh, in Brazil who is kind of committed to the idea of socialism? Yeah, it also comes from a uh, a journal issue that is pretty wild. Um, it's called, well, the journal's called Religion, State, and Society, and if you're a huge nerd and you have library access, you can look up the the issue. It's volume 21, number one, from 1993. Um, it is worth saying that because the whole issue is themed around theologians thinking about socialism explicitly. In fact, a long time ago, um, Matt and I both had like vague memories of doing a podcast episode that drew from this uh, journal <laughs> issue, but we couldn't remember what it was. So I did look it up, and it was like... I think five years ago or maybe even more than that, um, which feels a very long time. But uh, there we did an episode on something Fry Beto had written about liberation theology in the Berlin Wall. So it's a great whole thing that you can look up and read more about. Uh, what's really interesting about Clodovis Boff here is you're getting this reflection on the trip that he took. He also wrote a whole book about those experiences in uh, the Soviet Union, in Cuba and China, um, Fry Beto also wrote a book kind of of like a, a travel diary to those countries, and they have sadly never been translated into English. So if you speak or read Portuguese and you really want to translate something, man, I would love to read those books. Uh, but this is the snapshot that we get. This is Clodovis Boff really kind of summing it all up and putting it in like a, a 10 page letter for us. Yep. Uh, so, Dean, tell us what is socialism according to Clodovis Boff? <laughs> yeah, great question. Um, well, 
it's really interesting. I'm going to read his definition here in a sec. I'm very fascinated by this uh, definition for a bunch of reasons. One, because in the early 2000s, Claude Douglas Boff made some really big public critiques of liberation theology, and Leonardo Boff answered them publicly in a big public family feud of theology. And so I always kind of was like, I don't know, a little bit sour about Claude Elvis Boff or kind of like, eh, I don't know, man, you know, like <laughs> he he took the path I didn't want him to take. And so I never really went back and read much of him, except um, he did co-write with Leonardo Introducing Liberation Theology, which is a great book. Um, and he's written some other stuff in his own right. Uh, he's a more like methodical writer. Um, Leonardo Boff is very mystical, very like vibes based. I don't know. The, yeah, extremely vibes based the- theology for sure. Glodovis is a lot more systematic Um, in some of his other writings. He spends a lot more time parsing out, you know, theological terms. He writes like a real theologian. Uh, Not that Leonardo Boff isn't a real one, but (laughs) he writes in a more interesting way. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. (laughs) Um, And you you see that here in his approach to socialism as well in a way that I really appreciate. Um, So I'm glad to have gone back and and, uh, overcome that allergy to Glodovis Boff. I think this is a really great thing that you can read with your church small group, I guess, not without its problems, but a good thing. So here is how he puts it, uh, trying to define socialism in the letter. I start by saying that socialism is not, in essence, a complete social system, nor just a method of organizing economic production. It is more exactly a way of organizing all of society, starting from the socialized economy, or alternatively, it's a way of organizing the economy, which has implications for politics and ideology. Socialism is, then, a type of socialized economy, but it implies a type of politics, which are democratic, and ideology, which is pluralist. A lot on the table here already, and a lot of things that would be challenged by other socialists, for sure, but I think it's a really interesting observation. Usually when we talk about socialism, and what I do too, it's easy to reduce it to a problem of production. And I think it's strategically useful to do that sometimes because people get, you know, they their the hair on the back of their neck stand up when you say the word socialism. You can sort of create a more interesting conversation space by being like, all I'm doing is talking about the means of production. And Claude Abbas-Boff is going to say more about that in a minute. But I think that the way that he sort of identifies that, okay, it is that, but also there's this other stuff kind of involved, like democratic politics a space for pluralism, I think it helps to flesh out what's really at stake in socialism, which is more than just a means of production. It's really about organizing the conditions for life. And that is a a good kind of liberation theology way also of thinking about socialism, right? It's not just the, uh, the dollars and cents, the economic formula. It's like, what do we need in order to live a more kind of in, in a more loving and, and just situation? And that for Claude Boff is socialism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually, I, I think that's a cool way of thinking about socialism in this more expanded form. I like the emphasis on democracy and also on pluralism. I think that's actually a conversation that's um, missing in a lot of ways from other socialist conversations, or it's like mm-hmm. implicit maybe sometimes, but uh, to, to stress it, I think it's really good, especially if you are a religious per- person and it's 1989 and <laughs> and you've been to the Soviet Union and China and maybe and Cuba, too, and, and seen um, that maybe sometimes the pluralist side is not there. Um, so cool. I think a, a great addition uh, and, a, and a maybe an expansive way to think about things. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because that historical context of those visits makes a difference, especially in terms of the pluralism. So he's visiting the Soviet Union 
in the middle of uh, Glasnost and Perestroika, which are both very controversial, but um, on the one hand, economic liberalism or liberalizing of the Soviet economy, and then on the other hand, a more kind of cultural openness and lots of debate about that strategy. Ultimately, the Soviet Union collapsed, so some people are like, that's because of the liberalization. Other people think that's independent of all that. I don't know. You can make your own choice, but there's clearly a kind of pivot toward a more open version of the Soviet experiment that Clodovis is encountering. And similar in China, it's post the Cultural Revolution, and you have this kind of experimentation going on in China with uh, a little more openness in the economy and in society too. And the same in Cuba, because especially with respect to Christianity, it was only a few years before um, 89 that uh, something like Fidel and Religion came out, that book with Fray Beto. And the Communist Party of Cuba was explicitly making overtures toward Christians and society and kind of opening up as well. So, you know, it's uh, it's interesting. He has words to say about kind of the experience experiments of, uh, of socialism and people suffering under it. So it's not like he has a totally rosy view of it by any stretch. But I think it's interesting anyway that this comes on the heels of visiting those historical big communist states, right? <laughs> like, he's not being like um, socialism in the abstract sense or socialism in a kind of um, pluralist social democratic sort of way, but, you know, it's on the heels of, of this tour, and I think that's a really interesting context too, a completely lost context. Yeah, totally. Uh, an important piece of the puzzle to understanding exactly, like, why he's saying the things he's saying and why he's parsing it out just in this way. Um, well, to push forward a little bit here, uh, he goes on to say some more things about the social society, uh, not in the abstract, but in the concrete, in the material, as it actually exists in the world, uh, in the countries he just has visited. So Cladovis Boff says a social society, in the strict sense, a socialist economy, presupposes the end of private property, not as such, but as the dominant form of ownership. In its place, there arises collective or social ownership. In other words, it's not some pure mode of production that only exists in books and in the heads of abstract intellectuals. There's no such thing as pure capitalism or pure socialism. What exists is a dominant or principal mode of production. Capitalist when private ownership is dominant. Socialist when the dominant mode is social or collective. Um, there are some things I don't quite like about the way he parses this out, but maybe that's because I have a pure intellectual head. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I do get the point. I, I see what he's saying. He was just in these places that are, you know, experimenting with the with some liberalization of the economy. Uh, whereas this this the dominant form of ownership though is still social. It's still collective in that uh in that bigger socialist sense. So I can kind of see, I guess, why he's saying what he's saying and that it's fine and it makes sense. Um, but I don't know, actually, probably a pretty good note, though, right? Because if you're talking about uh, socialism as it does exist in the world or has existed in the world, um, people love to, you know, well, say things like it's not real socialism. It's just, you know, whatever. It's state capitalism because of X, Y and Z things. And I don't know. Some, <laughs> I feel like sometimes there's some things to those types of critiques. But if if you're looking for like a like he's saying here, a pure type of socialism in in practice, you're not going to find it. The best you're going to do is the the dominant mode of production. And I feel like that's, uh, I don't know, some qualification uh, that does help you make more sense of, of what you see in terms of Cuba, the Soviet Union, China, and so on. Um, some, some pretty helpful, I think, ideas. Yeah, it's helpful also because it's good to understand what those societies are doing on their own terms. Like, 
you know, um, in Cuba, for example, which is probably the economy I know most about because it's like smaller and easy to wrap your brain around. Um, it's true that the state expropriated all kinds of big private industries after the revolution, and that was very important and remains very important. The state owns lots of stuff in Cuba. But at the same time, Cuba also has experimented with um, cooperatives, for example, that are not state run, but are a different kind of property. It's a, uh, you know, it's collective property, socialized property, but not run by the state. Um, there's also all kinds of kind of small or medium level businesses, some of which are like controversially quite uh, comparatively wealthy in Cuba. Right. And all those things are sort of in the mix of a big economy that is ultimately um, contextualized with a dominant socialist philosophy and socialist way of organizing society. So it doesn't it doesn't mean to say that, like, every socialist state has obliterated all forms of private property or even all forms of inequality, for that matter. Um, but it is to sort of have a more realistic picture of what it means to slowly progress toward uh, the more, you know, a more socialized version of an economy. And Kodavis Bafaf also goes out of his way to emphasize that, like, you know, as as we always say, the communists are not coming for your toothbrush, right? You're, <laughs> you can keep your personal property. And uh, Kodavis Bafaf says, and also, you can probably keep, like, your family bakery, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not the kind of thing that a socialist, like, government is interested in, you know, expropriating from you. But, like... Your family can't probably keep your like giant bread factory that <laughs> employs like 500 people. Like, you know, maybe that's a different sort of situation. So um, interesting anyway that Kodovas Boff is giving his good, uh, good theological training um, a, a workout here by parsing out some particularities. Yeah, actually, I really did appreciate that piece, too, where he's, ta- he's talking about like the scope, I think, of collective ownership or social ownership. And he he does say specifically, right? We, we're not talking about your your medium sized or small businesses, uh, which is interesting because that's always a question I think people get antsy about with with regards to socialism. And it doesn't mean that like there's no labor regulations or anything else with regards to those businesses mm-hmm. for sure, right? There's all kinds of stipulations and different types of rules, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's not the uh, it's not the scary thing that uh, you know the bourgeoisie would would have you believe. So there is this actually this really funny line, too. He says, um, so small and even medium owners, medium is always a relative term, have nothing to fear from socialism. But it's the large owners, the bourgeois class, who have something to fear, who get terrified and terrify others. Um, a great nod towards, <laughs> I guess, the ways that, uh, you know, the the capitalist class, they're they're happy to, like, you know, use socialism as, in a scary way uh, to the you know, petite bourgeoisie or like the the smaller medium sized businesses or something. Yeah. Yeah. And also something said by a Brazilian who has experienced a few decades of material, uh, military dictatorship, sure. which was brutally anti-communist and literally killing people for being communist and so on. So yeah. Um, <laughs> important to make that observation. Mm-hmm. Um, he also goes out of his way to again, parse this out in some more, uh, more helpful ways. I'll read what he says. He says, how can the people at the base or the workers in association, as Marx described them, manage the economy? This is possible through a combination of three entities. And again, this uh, these three are like a really good um, example of really getting into the weeds of like actually existing socialism. So one, the state, insofar as it is really representative of the base and administers the economy for the benefit of the majority not as in our country, where the state sets up its economic policy overall to benefit the rich. 
At this point comes the vital question of political democracy as an instrument for and even a path to self-managed socialism. And he says he'll come back to that. He does. The second is associate. He does. (laughs) He makes good on that promise. Uh, Associations of workers directly administering the different production units. This would be direct economic democracy, while the first form would be indirect democracy. And then lastly, the third is private individuals and groups exercising freedom of economic initiative in small and medium-sized businesses without excluding large businesses, provided that they subsidize and encourage the essentially socialized system of the national economy, as is the case in China. This is precisely the direction of the economic reforms taking place today within real socialism. So uh, three kind of means by which uh, workers in association are able to manage the economy, mediated by the state, mediated by uh, associations of workers or kind of cooperatives or trade unions or a variety of other uh, mechanisms. And then lastly, the sort of uh, model that you get in Dengis, China, right, where you have um, an opening up of entrepreneurial visions and kind of private owners, but they all sort of contribute to a, a national economy that is still managed by uh, a communist party that's able to intervene and expropriate things and all that kind of stuff. So it's interesting that uh, I think, you know, Marxists, I think rightly sometimes, and especially theological ones, get criticized for being like, yeah, yeah, socialism, it's great rhetoric, but like, what does it actually mean in practice? And Boff is here to tell you, well, it means these three things that I know because I've been to some socialist countries. <laughs> Great. Yeah, that's um, pretty good. I think this is this kind of thing is actually really helpful, too, because people always are wondering about this kind of thing, exactly what it looks like in practice. Or, you know, what does it mean for workers to own the means of production in some kind of larger sense? And this gives you at least three ideas of what it could mean. And uh, <laughs> cool. Great. All right. So we just cool and great. Cool and great. Uh, that's what this this that's this essay should be called. Cool and great. Um, we were just mentioning uh, socialism and democracy uh, just a minute ago about uh, democracy as an instrument for and even a path to the self managed socialism that uh, that Boff thinks is good. Um, so the second section of this letter is all about that particular relationship. Um, and I think the I, I love I love people who are thinking about democracy extra hard. It's one of those things that (laughs) it's important because it's one of those things that in the United States you constantly hear people talking about, but never like with any type of like critical eye. And it's always so frustrating. (laughs) And I remember like when I first started reading about people who were, you know, theorists or whatever, who were like interested in more direct types of democracy. I thought, isn't that interesting that people have actually thought about this harder than than people in like my United States uh, high school civics class or whatever. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's just uh, it's always uh, an enlightening moment, I think, when people give uh, more breadth to a term that you've heard your entire life. And then all of a sudden you realize you actually have no idea what it means because uh, you've never experienced democracy in a meaningful way. <laughs> never had to think about it. Never had a chance to exercise it. Totally. It's just like, ah, democracy is voting. And it's like, well, not really. Uh, it could be more democratic <laughs> if you think about it. I mean, it's important because there are all kinds of places and ways that like people in the United States and in Canada and in all and like Western Europe and everywhere, I guess is what I'm trying to say, limit democracy really arbitrarily. Like, you know, democracy is like the most important thing in the United States. People will tell you it's so important that we have free and fair elections. And I agree. It is important that we have free and fair elections. But then it's like, uh, but that's only it's only important until you go to work. And then it's not important anymore. You shouldn't have to. You shouldn't think about democracy at work. That's silly, right? That's completely bonkers. Or like, 
you should think about democracy for sure. But like when you get to school and uh, you should just listen to your teacher and kind of just shut up about it. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like so funny that we emphasize democracy so much, but we don't actually think about it very critically or we don't actually care enough about it to interrogate like what it actually might mean. All that to say, mm-hmm. Boff is thinking about it in a bigger way. And I, I like it. You love to see it. So uh, Boff opens a section about socialism and democracy. And he says this. The great challenge of the present period of history is to create a model of socialism which represents freedoms. So there are three freedoms that he thinks are important, and they are economic freedom in the sense of participation in decisions about production and the right to use one's initiative and inventiveness in the economy. The question of the flexibility in the economy. The second one is political freedom. Political freedom in the sense of participation in the general management of society, including leadership positions. That's the question of political democracy. And finally, the last type of freedom is the freedom of conscience on the level of worldviews and religious beliefs, the question of ideological pluralism. So these are the freedoms that he thinks a democratic and socialist society will have to confront and like figure out how to, you know, structure, how to provide them to people. How do you make a state where these things are like fundamental? And for Boff, he thinks that uh, socialism, if you're if you're really kind of getting into it, and not just as a type of political economy, but as a as a whole sort of social system, that uh, that socialism uh, and democracy are sort of like complementary sorts of terms, and that uh, together they kind of like lend they'll they'll lend <laughs> together with their powers combined, they kind of create a system where these types of freedoms uh, come more easily than maybe other types of political economies. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to to uh, to parse out all of those freedoms because there are things that uh, capitalists would probably say that they already have. Oh, right? totally. Um, that capitalists already have economic freedom. They make decisions about production and they they have a lot of inventiveness in the economy. They have political freedom. They you know, they could seek office if they want. They have freedom of conscience. And I think that's what's interesting as well. Like it's something you get in Marx where Marx is um, a really intriguing theorist to read because he, he has original thoughts and opinions and so on. But what he's really trying to do is say, well, capitalism says all these different things about what's going on in capitalism. It says this and that about wages. It says these kinds of things about how money gets you know spread around or how value is created. Um, but does that is that actually reality? Is that really what's going on? And, and it's not. And so Marx is trying to kind of point out the contradictions or inconsistencies in a capitalist economy, right? Like that's one of the the also controversial things about Marxist economics is that it really takes a lot of capitalist political economy as a vocabulary and then interrogates it, right? Marx isn't like building a completely new system from the ground up. I mean, some people do think that. I think. Probably not. <laughs> That's my hot take in this podcast. But, you know, he's he's working with uh, the promises capitalism makes or, or assumes or the premises that it puts out. And it's and he's saying, look, it, it doesn't really work that way. Right. And that's what Kudovus Boff is doing here in kind of a, a more, you know, a simpler way with respect to freedom that we all want these freedoms. We all want economic freedom. We want to be able to participate in discussions about production about our own kind of uh, initiative and creativity and so on but does capitalism really give us that no right like in a work situation you you generally don't have the the ability to participate in decisions you do whatever your boss tells you or you get fired or political freedom you know you could seek office you could seek leadership 
But at the end of the day, if you are fundamentally challenging capitalism as a model, good luck. You're probably not going to get anywhere. And the same with freedom of conscience, that you can have different worldviews, different religious beliefs. And as long as they don't make that much of a difference to other people around you or in a public way, or they don't commit you to doing things like, I don't know, spray painting a nuclear warhead or something because you don't like it, then, you know, you're fine. But the minute you sort of allow those beliefs to uh, to impinge on public life in a way that is sort of for social justice, let's say, then you're in big trouble. Right. So I think Clodovis Boff is trying to say you can't really have these freedoms without socialism in that broad sense that he suggests in the beginning of the, the essay that there has to be this economic change. And there also has to be these these other kind of pieces involved, a way of organizing all of society politically and ideologically such that the conditions for those kinds of freedoms to emerge really are are set and, and they're not set yet, you know, anywhere, really. I think that's uh, the the aspirational nature, maybe, of outlining those those freedoms. Totally. Um, riffing off that that point you made about capitalism earlier, too, I think there's uh, an interesting polemic in here that uh, Clodovis Boff deals with in uh, kind of an interesting way. So he uh, right after those economic or the those freedoms I mentioned earlier that he kind of walks through. He says, Michael Novick, the theologian of American capitalism, challenges liberation theology. Yuck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Big yuck. He challenges liberation theology to define the institutional form or particular face of socialism it advocates, um, which, uh, I mean, liberation theology does do this, but not like that. Not, not like Michael Novick is saying. It's fine. <laughs> not a big deal. Anyways, uh, Michael Novick is worried about the practical institutions which will guarantee persons their creativity and freedom. Despite the author's ideology, the question is serious. It can be summed up in the old dilemma, how to combine equality and diversity, justice and freedom, specifically socialism and democracy. Um, Despite Michael Novick being the theologian of American capitalism and how yucky that is, uh, I think that this is actually um, kind of a good critique of liberation theology sometimes, uh, that it's just like, you know, it's it's wanting everything without saying specifically how it's going to get those things. So that uh, Clodovis Boff is like kind of engaged in that particular problem is cool to see. Um, and part of why I think this this uh, this letter is, is interesting uh, and and is that that's what's like pushing him to actually define these freedoms. Right. And to define this relationship between socialism and democracy, because, um, you know, uh, liberation theology, it wants uh, a particular type of. um political formation that like cares about the poor and it's like, how are you going to actually get it? And, uh, and here's Boff actually, you know, engaged in that process of unpacking what that looks like. Right. And it's interesting too, because, uh, that is always Michael Novak's critique of liberation theology, by the way, Michael Novak, we should do an episode on him at some point, maybe. Um, but this isn't, this isn't the know your enemy podcast. So, (laughs) you know, really, uh, Matt Simon and maybe Sam Adler Bell should do it. But, uh, he was a very weird guy. Um, he was involved in all kinds of Reaganite stuff and uh, CIA stuff and this whole like, you know, there was kind of a cottage industry of like conservative intellectuals commenting on things um, in the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. And Michael Novak was the guy you would call if you wanted to complain about liberation theology. And he was a, a Catholic libertarian, basically. And he wrote a couple books on liberation theology And he is so wild because he'll always be like, yeah, liberation theologians, they can't even tell you what they want. And then also he'll be like, can you believe these guys are into Nicaragua? (laughs) Like, you know, uh, just a a person who is, I don't know, always acting in bad faith. 
But I like that Kodavis Baf is like, you know what? Fine. It's true. We should just like put up and say what what we want. And what we want is socialism. I think that's great. Um, so anyway, uh, I think it's it's just a good thing that, you know, he uh, rightly recognizes that Michael Novak is the the theologian of capitalism. And Kodavis Baf is just sort of like owning that he's going to for a minute be the, the theologian of socialism. Yeah. Great. Yeah, it is. It's good. All right, so maybe a little bit more um, on capitalism than in Clodovus Boss's work. Uh, you know, we, he's starting to flesh out a little bit more about what the socialist, the socialist part looks like. But uh, if you're going to talk about socialism, you got to critique it and uh, put it in stark contrast to capitalism, I think. Uh, so in the in the letter, he says, in capitalism, where the owners of money rule, it's impossible for genuine democracy to operate, though progress is always possible. Very optimistic. In the first world, the world of advanced capitalism, the most that can be achieved is social democracy. That's socialism managing capitalist business, which is a very funny way to (laughs) put what that is, but I guess that works. Um, Then he says, capitalism creates two limitations for people's democracy, a historically necessary pleonism. The factory gates on the far side of which tyranny of capital rules and the power of money, which distorts the democratic process. So this is good. Because uh, you want to say, you know, he's starting to say what it is that socialism looks like uh, that he's after, and that's helpful. But then he goes out to say, too, that capitalism says that it's going to give you democracy, but really it's not. It's going to give you a really limited and stunted democracy that you do have to check at the door of your job. Um, And uh, if you want to go vote, that's totally fine. But you're never going to have as much influence over the whole political system in voting as uh, people who have a lot of money. And uh, there you go at the end of the day. Not all that dem- democratic. Pretty undemocratic, if you ask me. I think you're right. And Boff goes on to say, the conclusion is clear. Socialism is the economic basis for the democratic ideal. What a big surprise. Yeah. Uh, it's the material condition for the exercise of civil and political freedoms. But there cannot be real economic socialism without political democracy. After all, what is socialism but control of the productive system and process by the workers themselves? And can this exist if the workers lack the political freedom to discuss and decide on the way production should go? How can they really be subjects, shapers of the economy, if they are deprived of the exercise of citizenship? It's only as citizens that the workers can really control the economic process. And I think this is an important challenge to the left as well. And let's face it, like the big socialist countries have varying degrees of participation, and those degrees are kind of hard to parse. Uh, The Soviet Union, for example, is a big country or a big union of countries, I guess is a better way of putting it. Um, And all those different countries are doing different kinds of things. Russia is doing something different from what uh, communist Germany is doing from, I don't know what they're doing in whatever, Albania, et cetera, <laughs> right? Uh, this, the, the same in China, that different provinces in China experiment with different kinds of, um, you know, mixtures of uh, economic planning and, and so on. And of course, in Cuba in particular, I think they've kind of achieved something that is a, a pretty remarkable balance of this sort of thing. There's a lot of citizenship participation. There are, you know, <laughs> maybe one one good example is like, Raul Castro very uh, recently, you know, in the last decade or a little bit more, has been um, increasingly like opening up. uh, I hate that way of describing it, but opening up for lack of a better term right now, the Cuban economy to different kinds of businesses and also different sorts of, um, I don't know, like uh, 
uh, capitalist kinds of ventures or even removing certain property uh, laws so that like you can buy and sell a house differently in Cuba than you used to be able to really kind of controversial stuff. And the question is like, is there a restoration of capitalism happening through those reforms? And the funny part is like Raul Castro will make these kinds of pitches like in a big speech. He'll be like, we're going to roll back the ration card. You know, maybe we don't need that. Maybe that's kind of holding us back from having a more participatory society. And then they put it to a big vote and everybody in Cuba is like, no, we don't want to do that. And then they just like didn't do it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, (laughs) like uh, it's important to recognize the diversity of kind of participation in socialist experiments. What you get across the Soviet Union and across time, right? That's going to be pretty different uh, than what's going on in China, also across time and across geography. And then the same as a place like Cuba or Vietnam or a number of other places or Venezuela, you know, like there's kind of different ways of of sorting that out. But I do think that what Clodovis Boff says is, is right. You know, we we should be striving for some kind of participatory society where people feel um, reflected in what's happening around them, in the decisions that are being made, that they're they're participating in it, you know, like they do in, in Kerala, India, or in Cuba. Um, and that's an important kind of piece of building socialism. I think there's a certain faction of, you know, <laughs> weird leftists on the internet who are basically just like, I don't know, whatever whatever seems vaguely communist must be right. <laughs> and like, I I don't know, in a world of capitalism and capitalist media, I guess I kind of understand that, but it, it doesn't like absolve us from the need to think very hard about what kind of world we'd rather build. And, uh, you know, there are better and worse ways to sort of start that argument or better and worse places to to point to, to say, well, it might be like something like this. So great for Clodovis Boff to be like, you can't have real socialism without political democracy. Yeah, I think it's a claim that is actually really compelling that those two things need to go together or else you're not going to do either of them very well. And that's cool. Um, I also, I think to what you were pointing out a minute ago, right, that like different projects are kind of doing different things with regard to democracy and self-management in different places. And it's not sort of like one, you know, homogenous democratic project or something. In the United States, though, that's how we talk about democracy, right? Is that like, well, we have mm-hmm. a particular democratic mechanism um, in in voting or, or, or whatever here. But uh, I think, you know, I, I, like, listen, um, it's hard to look at the United States now and look at the politicians that we have. I mean, even if it's hard to even look at the, the, the United States then and the politicians you had then in 1989 <laughs> and say that people in the United States, politicians, I guess is what I mean, really like democracy in some real way. Um, I always think of this book uh, written by Jacques Ranciere, who's a very interesting mm-hmm. French guy. <laughs> it's called The Hatred of Democracy. And the whole point of the book is just that like, OK, well, the two points of the book. The people who say they love democracy the most, um, like American politicians, actually hate it. They hate democracy because they hate your guts, because they think that you're a dumb idiot. <laughs> and and if you were if you had money, they would care about you. But since you don't have money, not you're not an important person. They're not going to bother, uh, you know, placating you with uh, with uh, things like democracy. But they'll just keep talking about democracy nonstop. Um, and uh, in that book too, he kind of he kind of put, points out that. Democracy is is not like a stable state in the same way that like socialism is not a stable state. It's like a uh, it's a project that you can you know have more or less of, right? You can you can have more or less democracy in any kind of given situation. Um, and uh, I, I think that's actually kind of a helpful supplement to this particular conversation because uh, you know whatever uh, 
democracy looks really different in a socialist country than it does in places like the United States or Canada. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes it's, it's hard for us to even think about exactly what, like what it means for something to be democratic because of the ways that the United States warped our brains politically and, uh, around that <laughs> topic. So all that to say, it's really good to have these kinds of like expansive explanations of the ways that socialism and democracy are connected because for a lot of people in the United States, they wouldn't really see that connection as an integral thing um, without, you know, squinting very hard at it or something. So good to get it out there. It is good to get it out there, uh, especially as we're spreading democracy all throughout the world. Sure. We shouldn't shouldn't do it. Um, That's right. Um, so more gerrymandering, <laughs> but for places that, uh, you know, that uh, Americans can find on the map. Yeah, right. Gerrymandering, gerrymandering for uh, oil rich nations. I guess that's U.S. policy. Um, that's right. All right. So we've got a definition of socialism. We have socialism and democracy. Um, let's move to the way Clodovis Boff ends the essay, which is talking about socialism and Christianity. And there's a lot of funny stuff going on in here. Uh, it's a bit of a grab bag of stuff and we can bring it all in. Um, you get That's kind right. of the, yeah. the, the greatest hits of actually lots of people we've talked about on this podcast and lots of other people too. Um, lots of tendencies that probably don't really get along. <laughs> but uh, the point for Clodovis Boff isn't to say that like Christianity is fundamentally socialist in the same way, but to sort of point out that there is something socialist within Christianity that seems to keep like, sneaking out you know <laughs> it's like yeah. or, or bubbling up so i love the way that he he kind of opens this up he says first is the word communism the oldest term to describe the communion of goods in society you want to know that this is a word of christian origin and one even used by christians until recently as the sociologist jay leclerc says until the beginning of the 19th century the christian spirit was constantly centered on the communism of the primitive community and Christians abandoned the use of the word and began to talk instead about community only after it was adopted by socialist anti-clericalism. The ancient spirit of Christian communism survived, however, in the religious orders, which, by the way, is really interesting because Clodovis Boff as a Servite and his brother Leonardo Boff as a Franciscan both joined mendicant orders. So if you remember what we were talking about with St. Francis recently, um, they both joined orders that were sort of related to uh, to poverty and and explicitly committed to a kind of Christian communism. Uh, he goes on to say, if you get the chance to look at one of the best known theological encyclopedias, the Dictionnaire de Theologie Catholique, written at the beginning of the century, look up the word communism. It's in volume three. You'll get a big <laughs> surprise. You won't find anything about Marx or Engels, but only about Jesus Christ, the apostles, the first Christians, the father of the fathers of the church, the monks, the mendicants, etc., showing that this is a church affair, the biblical idea of communion of goods. So uh, there you have it from Clodovis Boff. Listen, we were there first. Uh, we knew about communism before it was cool. Um, I think it's a it's a really neat thing to sort of point out that um, for Clodovis Boff. Christianity has a, a communist tradition of its own. It's something that we've talked about in the past with like Jose Miranda pointing out that there is this, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of inescapable communism at the beginning of Christianity. And it's something that gets preserved, uh, even if it's not a majoritarian kind of tradition. We just tend to have like short term memories, I guess. It's good to point that out. Yeah, totally. Uh, a great and uh profound point as always i think we were there first 
I do love this extremely like year one of university move here to be like, <laughs> according to Webster's dictionary, if you look up the word communism, <laughs> <Yeah>. it's <laughs> it's good. A great move. Um it's very funny. Uh next time I do have the dictionnaire de theologie catholique, uh I will for sure look that up. It's in volume three after all. You'll get a big surprise if you do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, so he goes on to elaborate on this relationship a little bit more. It is reasonable to say that now Christians no longer offer any great obstacles to the social to the socialist vision. This is the result of great historical transformations which have taken place with, both within socialism and within Christian churches themselves. I will restrict myself here to the Catholic Church. In relation to socialism, it must be recognized that the magisterium has evolved significantly. The encyclicals. Oh my gosh, I'm going to get all these names <laughs> off. Awfully Just sound, wrong. sound them out with your Episcopal uh, tongue. <laughs> the encyclicals, Octogesima Advenians. Jeez, exactly. I can't do these at all. <laughs> Labor externs. Uh, how does anyone say Latin? I couldn't even. <laughs> I couldn't even start. Anyways, all of these different uh, encyclicals. They all have the good social stuff in them. You, you rest easy knowing that. <laughs> but John Paul II, he gave the green light to the socialist venture, though certainly not to every sort of socialism, um, which is interesting. So, you know, not only is there this like uh, this tradition of socialism, but uh, Clovis Boff thinks it's kind of baked into all these encyclicals and church teachings. I think this is overstating it, honestly. Um, that's my criticism of this. That I think that like to say that Christianity has no great obstacles to, to socialist vision is probably putting it a little too positively. Because, I, I mean, like, listen, I can't pronounce the names of these encyclicals, but I've read a few of them, and I know that not all of them are as socialist as they sound. Um, class harmony and uh, and stuff is not is not, uh, <laughs> is not the socialist win you think it is, but uh, fair enough, I guess. There's, there's some good socialist ideas in them, um, but maybe not as good as he thinks. Yeah, I mean, it is overstating it to rhetorical effect, but I think there's a moment of truth in it, though, which is that the the magisterial teaching on labor and capitalism does evolve over time. And even by the time you get to an anti-communist like JP2, there is a pretty strong case to be made that you could not make the social teaching of the church actionable without some kind of socialist vision. Um, and I think Cordovas Boff is trying to make a case that, you know, that socialist vision might be expansive. It might not be a strictly Marxist socialist vision, okay. but it is That's, nevertheless like, fair. yeah, it is a kind of socialism, no doubt. And I think that is true. Like, the magisterium often stops short of saying that from the Vatican, but a lot of bishops have recognized that and will say it. For example, um, I think we talked about this a long time ago, but the Nicaraguan bishops famously put out a whole statement during the Sandinista revolution, like right on kind of the right, right before they were about to win, um, essentially endorsing a certain kind of socialism explicitly and laying it out. Um, the bishops of Canada at a certain point have endorsed a certain kind of socialism. Um, the same with uh, lots of individual bishops, of course, around the world and different conferences. So, you know, I think there's a recognition in the church that a kind of socialism is how you express the the social teaching of the church. But like I said, maybe not, you know, not in Marxist terms exactly. Yeah, that's an important clarification. And I think that kind of comes through in some of the um, and some of the people that he references as, you know, type, like Christian socialists, 
like some people, some of them are like, you know, exactly who you'd expect, right? Like Thomas Aquinas is in there because he has something to say about private property that's like not very capitalist. And that's interesting. But there's also some people that he lays out in there who are who are Christians and socialists, but in like really weird ways too, that maybe make more room for it in, in this expansive sense. Like Robert Owens is in there. Robert Owens is like a, he's like, oh, okay. He's Welsh, but uh, he married into this kind of like wealthy factory owning family <laughs> and lived in Scotland for um, a long time. And he was a socialist, but like, the expression of socialism was like this pre-Marxist, like utopian type of socialism that was like, okay, uh, kids work in our factory and that's fine, but we're just going to make sure that those kids <laughs> also get to go to school in our factory, <laughs> which is like, <laughs> you know, like, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that uh, it's, an ex- if you know, there's uh, there's room for an expansive type of socialism here that's beyond Marxism, but also you should be kind of questionable. I think that those types of socialism <laughs> are questionable and uh, feeling suspicious about them. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, and like we said before, there's a grab bag of Christians doing socialist stuff in this section, right? So you've got Robert Owen, you've got uh, a bunch of other people. Um, He talks a little bit about the Christian relationship to the French Revolution or even like, um, you know, I don't know, like whatever's going on in Germany, (laughs) right? Uh, He points to like even Reinhold Niebuhr and the Christians for Socialism in Chile, right? There's, There's like a lot going on. And I think he's not trying to resolve them all to be like, look, they're all saying the same thing, but I do think he's trying to sort of point out that there's some kind of socialism that just like, you know, Christians like discover it (laughs) in different Mm -hmm. contexts in different ways because, you know, there's something there. And he even points to uh, this wild document in here, um, the Third World Bishop's Manifesto of 1967, which says, he quotes, true socialism is Christianity lived completely. Uh, which maybe isn't the way that I would like to formulate it, but is a kind of important opening toward that that sort of uh, sentiment. Um, he goes on to say, too, if there is a historical demand for socialism inherent in Christianity, the converse is not identical, but only similar. All socialism needs is an openness to Christianity and the religious question that is respect for the right of freedom of conscience and religion. So let's not turn any historical venture, even socialism into a creed, where would that leave the ideological pluralism of a genuine modern society, right? So I think what you're seeing here is a certain hesitation with being like, and it's this socialist tradition specifically. I think what he's trying to say is, like he puts it, there's a historical demand for socialism in Christianity, but there are socialist, uh, you know, states, experiments, and so on that have not been open to that demand, and also because Christians haven't always made that demand, right? Um, so, uh, I think he's trying to sort of maybe create a a clearing in which these two traditions or groups could kind of find each other on some, some common ground and just sort of see what happens, whether that's, you know, Marxist or Owenite or something else, who knows, but there's something there that I think is right, that those two traditions have a, a pretty broad, uh, history and they might as well, you know, just find out (laughs) what works and, and go from there. That sounds good. We can go from there. I'm committed to that idea. (laughs) Um, All right, so uh, we're kind of getting to the end of the episode here, so I'm going to read a little bit of a longer piece that kind of wraps it up. What can we say after all of this? Asks Clodovis Boff. A great question. (laughs) It's clear that Christianity is rediscovering its socialist roots. At the same time, socialism is becoming open to the moral and religious dimensions. Well-known socialists of today, such as Roger Grady and Lilio Basso, insist strongly that socialism needs to be reconciled with religion. Basso, an Italian politician, 
used to say that without religion, there's no true socialism, taking religion not in the denominational sense, but in the desire for transcendence and openness to something even greater. I myself heard the following from the lips of the Minister for Religion, uh, K. Karchev, when we were in the Soviet Union. Socialism will be complete only when it responds to all human needs, including religious ones. That sounds a little bit spooky, actually, from... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> from that from that perspective, but all right, fair enough. And then he finally, he ends the entire thing saying, so there you are, my friends. That's the situation <laughs> of socialism today from the point of a liberating faith. So, uh, okay, I think it's interesting, though. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's interesting the way that he formulates exactly the openness of Christianity and the, like, opening of socialism. Um, and even the, uh, the, the quote from the Minister of Religion in the Soviet Union is really interesting, that socialism, you know, to be complete, whatever that might mean, has to respond to all human needs, even religious ones. And I feel like, I, I said it was a little bit spooky, and it does feel like, I don't know, um, <laughs> responding to human needs from like the uh, from a minister of the, so- the Soviet Union does feel like maybe <laughs> uh, something different than just being like a pluralistic society, but that's okay. Um, you never know, I guess, what it could look like. But uh, anyways, I think that uh, that's an interesting observation that Boff makes, and I'm trying to think if it's like if I would still say the same thing today. And I think that I kind of would, but maybe in a different register. Like, I think that Christians in the United States and in Canada are kind of thinking about um, the socialist, the socialist roots of the religion and maybe not roots of the religion, but the historical demand that Christianity makes for socialism Um, insofar as like people are actually still Christian today, <laughs> which is, you know, mm-hmm. always kind of waning and uh, in flux, but that's okay. So I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm still kind of struggling to think if this is like something that's still true or not. But uh, Dean, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, good question. I mean, um, trying to determine exactly whether or not Christianity is rediscovering its socialist roots, I think is always um, a test of optimism, maybe. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I tend to not be very optimistic. But, you know, I think like, there are um, significant pockets of Christians who are doing that in ways that matter. I would be as optimistic as to say that, um, you know, like uh, I just think about people we've talked to on the show, like whatever Ryan Cagle's doing out in Alabama, that's fantastic. You love to see it. You know, <laughs> like um, yeah. there's a, there's a bunch of Christians getting together for a DSA meeting in some weird church or, you know, there's like an Episcopal caucus in the DSA. There's, all kinds of communists running around who are willing to work with uh, Christians, you know, in like diasporic global South communities to do a big solidarity rally for this or that country. You know, like those associations are happening all the time. Those kind of cross pollinations and, you know, mutations and whatever else like that's all going on. So I think that is true. Um, and I think that even on the other side, like socialist experiments, you can't really paint them with too, um, I don't know too reliable a brush, right? Like China, for example, it's like, I don't know, sometimes in some places it is opening up to more kind of religious or specifically Christian expression. And in some places it is not. Um, Beijing and the Vatican are trying to work things out, I guess, uh, with, you know, (laughs) halting degrees of success. Um, Or you see like in Cuba, it seems like there is a pretty... I don't know. My experience there was that there's a pretty open environment for people of faith to kind of practice their their faith and so on. So, you know, who knows? Like things have changed since 1989. The Soviet Union doesn't even exist anymore. So (laughs) it's a a very different world from the one that Clodovus Boff was in. Um, You know, he's also writing this at a time when liberation theology is still like 
pretty um pretty present in a big way uh you know the sandinistas got defeated electorally kind of around this time but uh they were a, a beacon of that sort of possibility so i don't know like if i had to assess our moment i wouldn't say that christianity is rediscovering its socialist roots or that like the this the judgment that socialism is kind of being more open to religion i guess would just sort of be uh, an observation of an incredibly different scale than it would have been in 1989. Yeah. But um, in any case, like I guess in my most optimistic moments, I hope that those two, <laughs> those two exilic communities in a world of capitalism are kind of like <laughs> finding each other in the desert. Maybe that's what I would say to risk some weird like Exodus metaphor or something like that. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. Though I think within the United States, the socialist movement is like uh, is reconciled to religion in ways that it definitely hasn't yeah. been in the past, and that's kind of an interesting <laughs> development. Um, so I don't know. There's some there's something going on there for sure. Yeah, I think so. So there we go. A great presentation of socialism from uh, the the B side boff, Cladovis boff. Um, oh my gosh, who uh, who did end up uh, making some bad decisions in the 2000s but not here i think uh really figuring out um a good way of making socialism understandable relatable and so on like i said i think it's only like 10 pages long it's a great sort of piece to like if you have like a small reading group or something to sort of put on the table and be like what do we think about this there's also all kinds of stuff we didn't talk about that you could spend time researching even more like all these weird christian socialists that he uncovers and so on but uh yeah, I don't know, Matt, if you brought this to your um, your youth pastor, uh, what do you think uh, might be the, the reaction? Yeah, um, my youth pastor would be very confused. But I, I do think the, the socialism and Christianity part is, I think, the wildest part of the, the essay. Um, but that being the case, if you do just need, like, a big list of people who are Christians <laughs> and who are socialists, this is, the, this is the thing you need. You just grab it and you got them all. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, socialist. Robert Owens, socialist. All these other weird guys, they're all socialists too. Um, and uh, you never even knew it, probably. So, anyways, I'll say it's a funny list. Um, that I think is like complicated, but maybe useful. Uh, if you need to just like <laughs> know <laughs> some people who are strangely socialist and Christians. Yeah, you can make a great trading card game for sure. Oh, that's a great point. Dang, that's such a good idea. I'd battle. I'd battle you for sure. Thomas card. Yeah, well, my uh, St. Francis card would definitely win, I think, over Thomas Aquinas, that big dumb ox. Yeah, the big, the big dumb ox. He's just got a, he's got a big sumo for you. That's a special attack. <laughs> a sumo wrestler, if you will. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, no, this podcast is over now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can find us. And support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. And if you do it at $2 or more, you can listen to our Behind the Paywall podcast where we make all kinds of great jokes and goofs and gags. Um, You got some of that energy on accident at the beginning and the end of this episode. So if you want more of that, you can get it there at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. You also get an invite to our Discord community, which is really fun and supportive and great. We've been having a lot of conversations about how weird it is to be Catholic lately. (laughs) And uh, a lot of great Protestants in there throwing in their two cents. And that's been really fun to watch. So you can check that out. Uh, Let's see. Our music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week.
get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind, a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early, at least I would have.